0: Morning. Just let me know if I need a. Can you hear me? Great. Um. Yeah. Hi. I'm Jace. If I've never met you, now you know my name. Hopefully, I'll get to know yours by the end of the day. Um. Yeah. I come. I come here about once a year. I don't know. I get a call from Glenn. He's like, "Hey, I'm going to be on a vacation for a long time. Will you fill in or something?" So it's. This is becoming a rhythm that I really look forward to. It's good to see your faces. Um. Yeah, I live in Vancouver. My wife and I live uh, just um, west of 205. I am a, by day, I'm a professor at Warner Pacific University, a Bible professor, and by night, a pastor at the Vancouver Vineyard Church. So most of my time is just spent going over assignments and reading the Bible, and it's what I do for fun. So welcome. I'm here. I'm just going to... Uh, Glenn asked me to just teach on whatever, so I'm just going to share on something that's been um, on my heart that I've been mulling over, thinking a lot about, studying a lot, and um, I, hope, I hope it goes over well. You can just, you can walk out if you're unhappy, but please don't. I'm really sensitive, and I'll think about it for like a year, <laughs> but I'm just going to pray, and then we'll just jump in. Jesus, it is an honor to be here, um, and I thank you for the hospitality that has um, embraced me warmly this morning. I pray a blessing over this church. And God, I just ask for your Holy Spirit. We don't want to do anything apart from your Spirit, so we just confess that we need it, and we're open to hear from you, and I ask that you would be with my words in particular. In your name I pray, amen. Great. Okay, so in 2013... I was heading into my junior year of college, and it was, it was the summer of 2013, and I was in the library at my school, the school that I'm actually teaching at now, full circle. All drains lead to Warner Pacific University, I have found. Um, and I was there, and I, out of nowhere, had an idea for a story. I'm a huge, like, I love fiction and movies, and I had this idea for a story, and um, I just got out my notebook and I just wrote it down real quick. And what started off as just like a like a word vomit on a page became like the only thing I could think about for um, the next few months. I just started spilling out this idea for the story I wanted to write. Um, and since 2013, it has been this like ongoing project. I've just, I'm trying to write a book and I have found that it is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's so difficult to try to actually write a good story. It blows my mind that people can actually do it. Um, so I have written the first, I've written probably uh, six drafts. I've written the first chapter probably 10 times and it's still nowhere near finished. But this past summer, I wrote, um, I think probably around the 10th draft of the first chapter. And I decided that it was time to take a risk And to, um, well, first of all, just so we're clear, I wrote this chapter and I felt really good about it. I mean, it's the 10th version and I've been mulling it over for years and I finally decided to just like send it out to some friends I trust. Um, and just basically I needed to hear them say like, yeah, this is good. Good job. Keep going. You know? So this is a picture of my, the first page of my first chapter. Um, the one on the left, if you can see, oh, you're fine. No worries. Um, So the one on the, that's the, that's the chapter, chapter one, right there, the first page. Don't read too closely. I can't handle the, don't judge it. Um, So I sent it out to like six different friends and then they all sent it back to me and I took the time to compile all of their edits onto one page with different colored markers and pens. And um, when it pops back up, you'll be able to see it. But the second page, once I got it back, was the sort of jarring realization of what happens when you think you're good and then your friends tell you it's not nearly as good as you thought it was? So if you could see on that second slide, uh, you could see all of those different colored markers and the effect was absolutely jarring. I was so freaked out. I was so um, scared to put all of those things into one, to one place. But the point was pretty simple for me, which is that it was um, incredibly silly And incredibly naive of me to think that my formation as a writer could happen in my own private little world. That I didn't need outside perspective at all or that I was gonna get it done. How silly, how naive, and frankly, how prideful. Because what I found when I was going through these edits is that as I was looking through those, they were right. Almost all of them were right. Little verb. Tense things, or just like the way I phrased a sentence, or the way the plot was un- unfolding—they just it just needed to be reworked. And I was so I was so humbled in that moment. Um, and so this is my little illustration, which I'm going to refer to as we come back to it. But it's close to my heart because it, um, when the Lord sort of put that illustration um, in my mind with what I'm about to talk about. I the conviction went deep and now I'll never go back into sort of thinking about the way that I think in regards to community. Um so we live in a culture that you guys you guys live in this culture, you know it. It is um just grossly oversized. It has this grossly oversized priority on individualism. It's it's a hyper individualistic culture we live in. It's just do what you want when you want, however you want. And um ironically Experts are saying, um, read a couple books that were horrifying. Um, while hyper-individuality and freedom is being emphasized more than ever, um, uh, loneliness is at an epidemic, like, all-time high. We're actually facing, um, like, a loneliness crisis. And it's interesting. that The more freedom we give people, do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, it sort of perpetuates this really dark um, isolated feeling that people have. And um, in a world just riddled by social anxiety and depression, connectedness through your uh, smartphones or your computers or your tablets or whatever has actually, is, it's being chosen again and again over the frightening frontier of real in-face relationships. Because you can control it. If you can text someone and let someone down via text, hey, can't make it tonight, sorry, That's so much easier. Imagine if you were just transported all of a sudden in front of the person that you were letting down and you were holding each other's hands and you had to look them in the eye and be like, Hey, I can't make it to that thing tonight that I said I'd commit to. It's just like, you'd probably just go to the thing, right? You would be like, I can't, I can't bear that. Yeah. It's because we've we're we can send a text. And so we're growing more and more spineless, right? We're choosing connectedness rather than actual relationship. Um, So I want to read a a quote by an author named Joseph Hellerman. He wrote, when the church was a family, which you guys, the introduction alone will have you on your knees in repentance. My gosh. Here you go. He says this, we in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. Um, And we find ourselves right in the middle of this painful tension. We are, we know inherently that we're made for relationships and we long to be connected. But we've been conditioned by a world that says, do what you want, when you want. And um, if you're not, those ideologies will clash. And never did I see it happen more clearly than in my college classes Um, I teach at Warner Pacific University, like I said, and it's a bunch of, it's like 18 to 21 year olds is the average age. And this internal war was just exhibited in class. Um, I brought, I, I found an article by David Brooks. I don't know if you guys have ever read David Brooks. He's a secular opinion writer for the New York times. He just gets paid to pay attention to culture and write smart things about it. Whether you agree, whether you agree with him or not, he's just a smart dude. He's secular. Um, But he wrote this fascinating article called Five Lies Our Culture Tells Us. And um, let me just put up three of them. We'll talk about them. Here's the three. There's three of the five. I can make myself happy. Life is an individual journey. And you have to find your own truth. Three lies your culture tells you. Now, um, we hear these as churchgoers. And this is sort of low-hanging fruit to critique. You hear that maybe as a Jesus follower and you're like, oh yeah, I know those are lies, right? But if you are a college student in today's world right now, that's not a lie. That is the air you breathe. That's the air you breathe. And it's really hard. And man, I would even argue, even as a Jesus follower right now, it's kind of, it's the air you breathe too. And you're still buying <laughs> We all still buy into it a little bit. So, um, a, a intensely charged debate ensued in class. Why though? Because my students were experiencing, maybe for the first time, um, the exposure to that ideological clash in their heart. They, they, they can see, excuse me, they can see the fruit of a life committed and lived in community, sacrifice and relationships. They can see that that looks so good. But this is, the, this is a generation that's grown up on you know, Hollywood's message of follow your dreams and pick your own truth. It's the same culture that's grown up with the Tinder mindset of follow your own truth and your most immediate sexual impulse. It's the same culture that deals with celebrity artist drama of I'll do, I'll do me, you do you, just stay out of my business. And like, as soon as you, st- that's, again, that's their life. And so as soon as they start to hold that really tightly, because that's true, and then come to terms with this other truth, a war happens in their hearts. And I'm watching it happen in, a, in debate form in my class. Um, so regarding self-sufficiency and happiness and our culture's obsession with keeping our options open, um, David Brooks, he says this, people looking back on their lives from their deathbeds tell us that happiness is found by defeating self-sufficiency, oh, I'm sorry, happiness is found amid thick and loving relationships. It is found by defeating self-sufficiency for a state of mutual dependence. It is found in the giving and receiving of care. It's a secular opinion writer. writing this. It's easy to say you live for relationships, but you know what? It's really hard to do. It's hard to see other people in all their complexity. It's hard to communicate from your depths not your shallows, it's hard to stop performing. I just like let the spirit of the Lord fall in the room and convict where he needs to, right? In church, you just perform half the time. You, get, you see the same people for years and years and years and you're still performing. And it isn't until you're 10 years into the, that, a relationship with that person, they're over for dinner. And finally, there's like an ounce of vulnerability. It's like, what on earth? It's because this is the culture you live in and it's so hard. He says this, next slide. The people who live best tie themselves down. Amazing. They don't ask, what cool thing can I do next? They ask, what's my responsibility here? They respond to some problem or get called out of themselves by a deep love, by planting themselves in one neighborhood, one organization, or one mission They earn trust, a precious commodity these days. They have the freedom to make a lasting difference. And then check out this last sentence. It's the chains we choose that set us free. Like you want to talk about putting a grenade in a room. He just says, put some chains on and you'll be better for it. No college student wants to hear that. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. So, to return to my cheesy analogy of writing a story. Um, we're, you guys, we are authoring the story of our lives every day. You're authoring your story, hopefully in partnership with God and others, but if not, you're still authoring your story every day. Um, and if we don't choose community, the chain of community, I would argue, you're actually, we're going to lead some pretty sloppy lives, um, despite the intuitive nature of this, that formate, formation, maturation, growth requires that sort of hands-on molding experience of others, despite the fact that we sort of would just know that intuitively, um, it's people of the American church, especially, that are guilty of that lone maverick mindset. Um, Joseph Hellerman, he says this again. You may be surprised to discover that the expression personal savior occurs nowhere in the pages of scripture. Our radical overemphasis on a personal relationship with God is an American, not a biblical theological construction. S- sorry if that hurts you. I Jesus is your personal savior to be sure. To be sure. His critique is against the overemphasis. Watch this next bit, this next little bit. What we find in the Bible, rather, is a God who seems at least as concerned with his group. Me in relation, relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, as he is with the individual. Me in relationship with God. Did you know that? Count up, do, just do a pure word count. The lion's share of the encouragement and words going out to fill up the people of Christ are going towards a group. Very rarely is it going to the individual. And that's just so different because you want to have your coffee time Jesus moment at 6am and be like, God, what do you have for me? And that's great. Keep it up. But when you stop your relationship with God there, you miss out on what the whole Bible is doing. (laughs) Sorry if that upsets you. So you've heard, you've heard, it's upset, it upset me. (laughs) That's upsetting to me. So um, you've all heard the sentence by someone else, or you've uttered it either out loud or in your heart at some point. I'm super stressed with work and stuff. Like life is crazy. I'm just like overscheduled and I'm just going to do me. But you know what? Like Jesus still loves me and I'm his beloved son or daughter. And like, I'll do the community thing maybe next week. I'll commit to that next week. Like, I just don't have the bandwidth. I just like, I need to have like a night with just like a glass of wine and Netflix or something, you know? I don't know. You've all like gotten to that point in your mind. <laughs> yeah. uh, dear, dear church, loved, dear, beloved church. If you think that the Bible is merely about you being called a son or a daughter with no agenda to see you grow into that identity alongside your brothers and sisters, you're reading a different book. <clears throat> so in the spring, um my dreams came true at my church and Marshall, my senior pastor, he let me do a five week series. My my frustration with preaching is I only get like I don't know, it feels like six minutes to give you like the best of me and then like the time's cut short. So he's like, What do you want? I was like, I would love to just like nerd out deep in a book of the Bible for five weeks so I can actually like get some momentum and like we can actually go deep into the words of scripture. So he gave me five weeks to do the Exodus story leading up to our Passover Seders and Good Friday. Dream come true. So fun. So um, this is the little, this is, we did the Exodus series. It was a blast. And you know, it's fun. It's such a familiar story, but man, it's not, we don't talk about it enough. Israel was to recount the story constantly. I think you should read it three times a year, especially leading up to Good Friday. There's something for you every single time. But um, you, you know the story. Egypt is in. It's enslaved in Egypt, and God calls them out of slavery. You know the story. You've seen the movie. And they come up, they go through the waters of the Red Sea, they wander in the wilderness for a bit, and then they come to Mount Sinai, and it's there where God un- unrolls the red carpet of covenant, relationship, his presence. Hopefully you know. Exodus 19. Tattoo it to your arm so you never forget it. It's all about Exodus 19. And in that moment, I want you to imagine, if you've heard the story before, that that's the end of the story. Just picture, picture this. God gets them at the foot of the mountain, and he says, dear Israel, I've called you up out of s- s- slavery. You're no longer slaves. And that's the end of the story. And then there, that's the end of your Old Testament. Um, <laughs> in other words, you guys, God doesn't see fit to merely liberate us from our from slavery. He desires to go a step further. This is, this is the business he's in. He it's it's not enough to just receive a new identity. It's that God has dreams of us being formed and shaped within the community of believers now, so that we can fully reflect the identity we were freely given. So Consider how this story plays out in a little tongue-in-cheek graph that I made. That's silly, but I love graphs. They help with everything. Exodus 1 through 18. Israel is identified and called by God. You can read it. Exodus 19 through 40, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Old Testament. It's all about Israel being formed as a community, formed through the ups and downs. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly, and ultimately it's tragic. But it's nevertheless God trying to form them. You were called out and read those, read the stories of formation, read the rest of your Hebrew Bible and you're going to find every other sentence is God saying, Hey, remember how I called you out of slavery? That's your identity. Now you're free. Stop acting like this. He's constantly pushing them into relationship with one another. It's like, it's, it just will light up the page. Once you start looking for it, um, when they get to the Mount Sinai, it's, they receive the law. God says, if you obey me, Hebrews, if you shema, listen and respond, listen and respond, obey. If you listen and, and respond to the Torah, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You are going to play this role of mediating between other people and me. You're going to be an in-betweener. And you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to, you're going to look different than everyone else. And we hear about like obeying the law and we, get, we like break out in hives. We're like, no, no, no. It's all about grace, right? But it's like, Jesus, Jesus, how did he feel about the law? He meditated on it day and night. He knows Psalm 1, that he, you meditate on the law day and night. He had that memorized, you better believe. And for him, he teaches, he not only fulfills it, but he teaches it. in, in the most, one of Jesus's most famous little one-liners, it's more than a one line, but here you go. You've, you've seen it before. Jesus says, he sums it up. Right here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Jesus says. Um, But then brilliantly, he does a little hermeneutical ninja trick and slaps on Leviticus 19. And everyone listening knows exactly what he's doing. And he says, but you know what? There's a second. And it's like it. You got to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands... Depend all the law and the prophets. Here's the point. Jesus got it. When he read his Bible, it clicked to him what this whole thing was about. God is, God is recreating the Garden of Eden again. And that's why the Bible is going to end with new creation, new heavens, new earth. And Genesis just gets retold. Because what he's doing is he's realigning this relationship we had with God at the beginning and the harmonious relationship we have with others at the beginning. And the whole law, as lost in the weeds as you can get when you read it about, like, man, why am I reading about, like, a cow that falls in a hole? And, like, I just, like, I don't, this law doesn't make sense to me. It's, it, this, is, this is the essence. Jesus, And Jesus sees it clearly. But I want to just, like, point out a very, like, I don't know. This, maybe it's obvious, but I just want to point it out. Um, if you follow God and you claim to follow God, you cannot do it in isolation. The identity of being a follower of God itself implies a life lived in community, formed and shaped by those around you. To love others as yourself requires another. You know? It's pretty straightforward. But so often, we choose the lone maverick, I'm gonna do me mindset. And there's a real real conviction here in the scriptures, I think, once you start studying it, that if you do that, you're missing out on not just half of what it means to follow God in this life. I would argue eight ninths or something with a more dramatic fraction, (laughs) right? The majority. Um, So if I can be so bold as to make this assumption, I'm assuming that at the very least, personal growth or formation or spiritual transformation, whatever you want to call it, um, is not a foreign or even a scandalous idea to most of us. My hunch is that that's something that you maybe grew up hearing or wanting, or even right now, as you look at yourself, you think, I'm not who I want to be. You, even, you might even think of verses like these, Romans 8.29 um, and 12.2. Sorry, that's cut off right there, but, and then 2 Corinthians 3.18. God is, he, you're being conformed into the image of his son, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Um, you're being transformed into the image from one degree of glory. So you've heard these verses? You all have this category in place already. I am not as I ought to be. Yeah? Um, so uh, next slide. There's a picture then for it. It's a little picture I drew. Um, <laughs> normally I draw this on a whiteboard, but in my church, I'm getting complaints that the room is too big and they can't see the whiteboard. So I've had to go to clip art, which is just not nearly as fun, but here we go. <laughs> and I spent an inordinate amount of time on clip art and f- I'm still not happy with it. But the current state, humanity, this is you and me. We're on the left. And there's this gap between sort of the ultimate goal of our character, this, the state of our soul, inner peace, whatever, put in, insert the language, that of Jesus, who we want to be like. And that we can feel the gap. And so you say something like this. When I look at myself, I'm not satisfied with the kind of person that I am. There is a significant gap in between my character and Jesus' character. And I know I ought to grow, but then the next few steps vary and they might go like this. Next slide. I'll pray. Yeah. This is like the emoji sign. Mm -hmm. So uh, you say, okay, I'm not where I want to be. So Holy spirit change me now to be sure, don't misunderstand me, to be sure you must do this. The Holy Spirit is not an optional way to get there. (laughs) You you need God's spirit to become like Jesus. Yes and amen. But you might also take another step. You might say, "I I need to better understand the problem. So you do a little reading, you do a little digging, you read a couple books, this is what I like to do. Like I've got this issue. I'll just go to a library. And I'll solve the problem there. Yeah, um, But some of you, my, my question is just simply this. Are you just as quick to say, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. So step three, what I need actually, are you just as quick to say, on top of prayer and self-betterment, I actually need people to hold me accountable regularly. I need them to be incorporated into the nitty gritty rhythms of my life. Um, I know for me, that's not, it's not necessarily the first option if I can just like pray about it real quick. Yeah. Um, but when we submit ourselves to the diverse body of Christ, beautiful things really do start to happen. You guys, Seriously. Um I we my wife and I bought a home a few years ago. We're first-time homeowners and homes come with yards and gardens and I was just I have been utterly swept up in the magic of gardening. I had no idea. I had no idea. And now it's like the only place I want to be. If I can just be outside in the garden with the flowers my gosh, why would you be anywhere else? I've been utterly captivated, utterly captivated. it's just taken over my life. And my wife asked me like, what do you want to do for your birthday? And I was like, I want to build, I don't know how to build anything. I I read books for fun. And I was like, I want to build raised garden beds, but sheesh, I don't really know what, they're going to be terrible. It's going to be like wonky. Um, My father-in-law though, her dad is like a genius with like building, building stuff. And Um, I just made this request, like, for my birthday, can we build these raised garden beds? So here's a picture of the area of um, my garden. So it says, um, this is the backyard. You can see the fence going along the back of the picture. What you can't see is that that um, area has a pretty dramatic slant downward. And I called my father-in-law and told him what the project was going to be like. He's like, yeah, I'll come help you. No problem. We'll build some raised beds. And he said, "Um, what I need you to do before I get there, though, is, like, level out that ground or else you're going to have these, like, sloping beds. I was like, okay, no problem. I can, like, swing a rake around and make that happen. So I went out there, and seriously, for the whole day leading up to my birthday, which was in September, I was just, like, pushing this dirt around, trying to get there. And I, like, I leveled it, you know, to the best of my ability. And Tom, <laughs> Tom gets there. It's my father-in-law. He gets there, and he walks into the back, in the backyard, and I'm, I kid you not, this is what he did. He looks at it, and he goes, okay okay, so we need to level this ground right here. And he just like starts grabbing a rake and starts leveling it. And I was like, oh yeah. I didn't just try to do that for a day and a half. <laughs> and he ended up just like showing me where all of my faults were, leveling it all again. I, basically, I did nothing to help him with the project and he had to pick up the entire slack. But here's the thing. Tom got to work, he helped me. And then this is the final, this is the after. How beautiful is that? My goodness. Oh, you can all come over to my backyard and I'll, feed you a cucumber or something <laughs> next spring. I, I just have to wait now to plant the vegetables, but it's so amazing. I could not have done that without Tom's help. This is such a silly, basic, straightforward illustration, but it, it is now so deep in my soul. The point is, is I needed Tom's engineer mind because if I had been left to my own brain to try to level that ground, those beds would be like this and like all of my vegetables would just be spilling out. <clears throat> Tom did for me just what I simply could not do for myself. And I think that there's something really intentional about that that God designed. Um, In conversations about community, this passage, Hebrews 10, 24, often shows up. Let me just read it to you. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's a classic passage. You've probably heard it before. Don't give up in getting together, even though we all kind of want to just give up in meeting together sometimes. (laughs) Um, What I want to talk to you about, though, is this word stir up. It's the Greek word parakousmas, and um, I just did some digging. Parakousmas appears elsewhere in the Bible. It appears in the book of Acts, and it shows up in the book of Acts. And do you know what it gets translated as in the book of Acts? Um, Two believers have a paracousmos with one another, and then they split ways. It gets translated as a sharp disagreement. (laughs) What? So language is fluid. It's flexible. Just because it means that in Acts doesn't mean it has to mean that in Hebrews. Context determines the meaning. You should all all come to Warner and take my hermeneutics nerdy Bible language class. It's fun. But here's the point. Whatever it means in Acts doesn't necessarily dictate what it means here, but certainly... Um, there's crossover. There's emphasis. There's there's a relationship between the two words. Whatever Parakousmas means in Hebrews, it's not just like a delicate little soft word. Um, this is a picture, I think, from the author of Hebrews of a robust, dynamic group of people that engage in truth telling with one another, but aren't afraid of one another. They love one another. They're willing to engage in. Really tricky conversations if it means growing up. So this is like sharp disagreement. Probably isn't the right translation, but but in, um, intense dialogue might be. Uh, for those of you f- uh, f- familiar with the enneagram, i am am a t- I'm a two on the enneagram. I like would rather die than be around any sort of conflict. I hate it. I hate it. And here's the thing, if you asked me about my ideal image of church, we'd all get together, hold hands, and we would just sway back and forth and then give lots of hugs, tons of hugs. I'm looking at Steph and Steph's like, no, I want to like swing some punches, right? And that's just like, here's, that's my version of church. Thank God I'm not the only one that gets to dictate the version of church. Or we'd all be like the who's on Whoville, and there'd be no conflict ever. And there'd be a lot of passive aggressiveness going on. But there's, the reality is, is that the picture of the body of Christ is that we come together and there's, there's, a, there's dynamic conversation. There's dynamic conversation. The kinds of conversation you can only have in family, like dinner table with family members, that kind of conversation. But it's not, you shouldn't be afraid of it because they're, in the author of Hebrews' mind, it's not an option that you can leave if you get uncomfortable. The implication is, no, you're family, so you're going to have those conversations in a safe place and then work, work it out. <laughs> you can't leave. Treat it as your family. By the way, Paul seems to do something like this to Peter. And I went down a rabbit hole and started reading it and decided I'm just going to put in the sermon and talk about it. Galatians 2, Galatians chapter 2. You've probably read this before. Check this out. But when Cephas, uh P- Peter, another word for Peter. When Caphos came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. First of all, ugh, makes me so uncomfortable, but it happened, right? He's just like, hey, because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James. Uh, Peter was actually eating with the Gentiles. But when those other people came, the, Jew, the Jewish party came, he drew back and separated himself because he feared the circumcision party or the Jewish party. So peer pressure and Peter recoils. And Paul says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So pause for just a second. Peter is the pastor in Jerusalem. He's the leader. What do you think is going to happen with the people that look to Peter for leadership if Peter backs away from engaging with people that aren't like him? They're going to back away with him. So they start acting hypocritically with him. So Paul sees this as a real problem, especially when leaders do this says, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said, oh, look at this. I said to Cathos before them all, nightmare, this was a public moment. Just try to picture this. It, like, it's horrible. If you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, get a grip. What are you doing? Right? And then everyone's just like, ooh, get me out of here. But in that moment, something had to happen. A paracousmas had to happen. A really intense moment of conversation had to happen. Um, Now, I don't want you to read too quickly. This is like number one rule in reading the Bible. We... Read way too quickly. We got to slow down. We have to learn how to slow down. Um, Question class. That's what I always say. Monday through Friday. That's what I say. Question class. Does Peter have the Holy Spirit? Of course he has the Holy Spirit. Don't overlook that fact. Does Peter, is he capable of hearing the Holy Spirit? Of course he is. You've read the book of Acts. Of course he's capable of hearing the Holy Spirit. Is Peter well acquainted with the ways of Jesus? Yes. Followed him for a few years. So is he also acquainted with Jesus himself? Yes. I would argue more than any of you. Peter knows what it means to live life with God. Could you even consider Peter a mature person of the faith? Yes, he's a pastor at the Jerusalem church. And yet, and yet, is it possible for grown, mature people of God to find themselves in the traps of their own prejudices? Without a question. Um, so I just want to ask, is it, might, is it possible then that we actually might require one another to grow in the way that God wants us to grow? <laughs> Um, Notice the subtle complexity in this passage, you guys, between Peter and Paul. What is the temptation that Peter, what exactly is the temptation that Peter fell prey to? Look closely. Did you notice that what what tempted Peter was actually community? But it wasn't, it's the dark side of community. What um, social scientists will call tribalism. The us versus them mentality. Peter was tempted by this deep desire to fit in with these guys at the expense of those guys because he really wanted that tight little community clicky feeling and, you know, whatever else it was like in the ancient world. It wasn't just like a click, but, you know. Um, And man, you guys, tell me this won't preach. Tell me it won't preach. As much as we're prone to hyper individuality Um, in our culture, I would argue that we're just as prone to hyper-community or tribalism. Yeah? We want to feel that we're right all the time, so we work hard to see our ideas justified by the news we listen to, the Facebook pages we follow, the friends we surround ourselves with, the cities we choose to live in, the people we choose to talk to, the coffee shops we choose to go to, the stores we shop at. I want to feel that I'm right and like on top of it all the time. So I just create, I I create and craft this perfect little context around myself that makes me feel like I'm so right. It's just like we wake up saying, I'm gosh, I'm right. And like the Bible's just gonna be like, you're not all the time. Right. Um, I listened to a, we are obsessed with this feeling of being in too. Like you want to be in with this little community. It feels so good. Well, high school, you've all been in high school. It's like, oh, that feeling of just like, you you go to bed at night and wake up thinking about how you can be in and make sure you stay in whatever the in is. I listened to a podcast to prepare for the sermon, um, a research podcast where the host just went off for an hour and a half on all that he found as he explored this phenomenon in, in humans. They're obsessed with feeling in and the things they align themselves with to feel better. Um, And it was hilarious, you guys, the things we take pride in. Uh, Are you a night owl or an early bird? And for some reason, like once you know what you are, you take this weird pride in it. And like you feel like you can like give nuts to the other like night owls in the room or something. (laughs) It's like classic, classic. Me and my best friend in college, he was a night owl and I was an early bird. And I was like, yeah, I'm an early bird. It's better. You know, it's just it's weird. Like, <laughs> I don't know. We're so weird that we like to do yeah. that. But it's, you guys, it is everything. Are you an extrovert? Are you an introvert? I just did one. Are you an Enneagram 2 or an 8 or, you know? We do this all the time. And then it's silly. We love to do it in both the deep things and the shallow things, what Myers Briggs or Hogwarts House or Edward or Jacob or whatever little thing. It's like when those moments come and the pop culture phenomenon rises, you love to, like, sort of figure out where you are and then, like, I don't know, get like a shirt with it on and you and your friends stand together. So it's weird, but we do, we love it. We love feeling like we're in to that little thing. And so because we're wired for community by God, I would argue, um, we're drawn to it. We're totally drawn to it, but like everything else in this good world, we're drawn to it. And then almost immediately we poison it. <laughs> community is God's design, but we have poisoned it with tribalism where we say it's us versus them. And this is like God, God's great antidote is the church. And it's ironically the church that has shown so much tribalism. Um, so there's, here's my question. Do you only want to hang out with people like you? And I think when I'm asked that question, I have to say yes, if I'm being really honest. I just, I I do. I really do only want to hang out with the people like me because I feel super good around them. And like we're laughing and there's chemistry and like, I don't have to like, you know, I don't have to serve anyone. <laughs> I don't have to cater to anyone. I can just like chill and they're chilling. You know how it goes. But you guys... I'm just here to tell you, and I don't, again, this isn't my favorite sermon to preach. It's just what I'm, the truth of what God's word says. The church is not that kind of community. Now, I want to pause. There is something about beautiful friendship where like personalities um, mesh, that sort of C.S. Lewis, you too, me and you, that sort of feeling, right? And you know those, your best friends in this world that like they get you. And f- For ways you can't even articulate, they just get you. And those, man, you guys, let me just say blessings over those. And may more come up in your life. For the rest of your life, may those kinds of friendships be abundant. But diversity, being around people that are not like you in more ways than one, is key in the body of Christ. And you guys, it's just plain and simply, this is what the biblical authors were getting at, especially in the Old Testament, when they talked about the promise of the nations getting to join in with Israel's future hope. Guess what, Israel? You're the chosen people, but every other ethnic group out there is going to get brought into this promise. Are you ready for that? God just straight up tells Israel in Deuteronomy, I didn't choose you because I think you're awesome. I chose you because I have a plan to bless the world through you. (laughs) It's been the agenda all along. And that was Peter's trap. For Peter, he was sent to the Jews of Jerusalem. And he said, hey, I feel like, I don't want to use the word called. He never says this, but essentially I feel some sort of like draw to, to the um, Jerusalem church. So Paul, why don't I be pastor here to the Jews? I feel like that's like where I'm supposed to be. And then you can go do whatever you want. Paul's like, great. I, my patience is running low with the, with the Jewish believers. I'd actually really like to go to the Gentiles. At least they'll, you know, like Paul, Paul t- so Paul takes off. And that's good and beautiful that God sends them out where they're supposed to go, but there is a trap. Just because it's God's good design does not mean that humans can't corrupt it with what they are tempted by, yeah? And this is what, this was Peter's blind spot. He forgot that the nations were to be included in this whole thing. It wasn't just for Messianic Jews now. Um, so, this example is a complex one for one more reason, which you've already seen, but I just want to say it. Just want to reiterate it. Did you notice that when Peter was trapped by the dark side of community, when he was tempted by it, did you notice what tool God used to convict him? Community. Do you see it? So it's so awesome. Um, God could have shown up in a Holy Spirit vision. He could have met Peter when he was praying with his coffee that morning. Yeah. He could have given him a crazy encounter during worship, but he didn't. He actually just brought Paul the bulldog over. And Paul was like, Hey, (laughs) like that was the method community. A dynamic conversation between two humans was God's choice. Was, that was his way of doing it. And read your Bibles, you guys. More often than not, that's God's favorite method to bring about growth. He puts two humans next to each other. And I, it's not my favorite, right? It's like I would rather God just like tell me in a dream or something. But he doesn't. Because what happens? Both Paul and Peter benefit from that moment. It's like he kills two birds with one stone. And then imagine how much he can get done when there's a bunch of people in a room. It's, it's actually a brilliant design strategically, just from a pure numerical standpoint. But it's uncomfortable for us because we'd rather just have it in like a dream or, or something. I don't know. So in the same way, here you go, that I was in need of my father-in-law's insight to build those raised garden beds. Um, Peter was in need of Paul. Paul just could see something. That Peter couldn't. And so diversity, you guys, is designed by God to expose our blind spots. We have them. You have them. And it is a statement of pride to suggest that you don't. You have blind spots. And so the question is, are you willing to open up your door, the door of your heart, to people that are not like you so you can figure out what those are and then let go of your pride and repent and say like, yeah, you look more like Jesus right now than I do and I like ask forgiveness. It's Like, oh, great. You know, but Jesus loves that. Um, and that's just straight up terrifying. Like, I'm not going to pretend this is like easy. Um, this is so terrifying for many reasons. And I'm so sorry. My time is running out. I'm going to go quick and wrap it up here. Number one, this is terrifying because some of you are not good at being vulnerable. And if you've been hurt before, being vulnerable in the context of community um, is like PTSD. Because how could you ever trust a Christian again or the church again or this little experience? How could you ever try again? Because I remember that last time. I remember the wounds that came from that last little, you know? So I just want to pause and say, I don't, I don't want to underestimate the like, weightiness of your wounds right now. But I do want to read you a quote, <laughs> another quote by Joseph Hellerman. He says this, running away, does provide immediate relief from the awkwardness of a hurtful relationship. It is the easy way out in the short term. And there are legitimate reasons to leave a local church. So he he acknowledges that. Sometimes there are. But people who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. And being a part of a, being in pastoral ministry for just the few years that I have, holy cow, is this the case? I can't believe it. I feel like sometimes we just feel like we're catching people from other churches and then like just trying not, you know, just like waiting for the moment we accidentally offend them and then they, go, they leave again. It's like that's not real community. <laughs> community will work through that. Number two, this could be terrifying or to use a more casual word, just annoying or frustrating. Community can be frustrating or annoying. Um, If you're tired, honestly, it's amazing how much exhaustion stops people from community. People who have either done church their whole life and they're over it. They just like, they're burnt out. Or, they have um, a crazy job. They live in a world of, with a high value of careerism. You get to the end of the week, it's like, the last thing you want to do is either go to church or go to a life group. Or go, like, be with people that like, it takes work to talk to. Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? To those people, did you know that Hebrews still comes at you and says, do not give up in meeting together. Don't neglect it. Lastly, perhaps it's not fear of vulnerability or exhaustion, just it being annoying. Maybe, and I relate to this one, maybe it's just not your idea of a good time. It's, it's more casual. It's just like, I just honestly just don't want to. I'd rather stay at home and watch my British gardening shows. I know you're all thinking that. I'm thinking that. And you know, it's nothing outrageous. To that, to that mindset, which I like have to preach myself, preach to myself every day. To that mindset, we, I just want to remind you, you guys, that we're not merely talking about life group and building relationships with one another as if they're like a weekly option to pass time. That's fun. Yeah? We're talking about having a mindset that is completely and utterly rooted in the kingdom of God, where heaven and earth are finally meeting and we're seeing real human relationships restored. Love, sorry, fear and insecurity and brokenness and woundedness melting away in the atmosphere of sacrificial love and full life commitment to one another. Who doesn't actually want that? My hunch is if I said sacrificial love where you feel unconditionally heard, like and, and and you're you like embraced is do you really not want that? Most people are like, no, I want that. Okay, that requires the day in and day out rhythm rhythms of community. It just requires it. And I know it's worth it once you get started. Um I wanna respect the clock. I have more you clearly you, I could just talk all day. I just like I've like notes and notes and notes. We could look at this passage and this passage, but we can't. Here's what I'm gonna say. Um uh Last slide. Let's go to the last slide. Here we go. Che- cheesy illustration. I'm just going to end with this. This is great. The story of our lives as individuals are being written every day. They, they are. And I don't want you to think too highly of yourself. You're not that great. You are great because God says you are. But you're not destined for greatness just because you woke up and said, I'm great. <laughs> you require the hands-on help of those around you. You require the hands-on mercy of God. You require the love and the grace of the people in your life to make you better. (laughs) You just do. And God says, get after it, get going. Like let the conviction of meeting with one another and not giving up, go deep and never leave the depths of your heart. Yeah? Thanks again for listening.